Bienvenidos and welcome to the next installment of Lead Media Programming. From Studio 54, campus of California State University San Bernardino, the digital media platform for inspired educators, leaders, and community activists and advocates taking our message directly to the people, to the gente. Thank you for sharing our common interests in the analysis, discussion, critique, dissemination, and commitment to the educational issues that impact Latinos. I'm your host, Dr. Enrique Murillo Jr. And this episode is a syndicated replay from season nine of Lead Summit 2018. The theme that year was Viva la Mujer and the strands and design of the summit that year were all planned and led by the Mujeres of Lead. Although our communities and nation's strengths continue to depend to a large extent on the positive educational outcomes of Latino students in general, it is the educational attainment of Latinas, the female students in particular, that is essential to our well-being and success. Simply, Latinas define the future. This intergenerational panel is entitled Latina Pathways in P20 Systems and Beyond, answering the call and discusses the state of Latinas in education including the challenges and opportunities for engaging and supporting Chicanas, Latinas across the P20 education continuum and beyond. With our broader student demographic, Latinas compromise a greater proportion pursuing undergraduate degrees in the United States. Yet Latinas still face challenges throughout the public education continuum, particularly in post-secondary context. Continue and enjoy the full value and complexity of this episode. We extend our appreciation to all our lead sponsors, partners, planners, volunteers, speakers, panelists, production team, affiliates, and town hall chapters. We commend them for lifting their voice and uplifting the plight of Latinos in education. Thank you, gracias, plazo camate. It is now my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Francis Contreras. Francis is an Associate Vice Chancellor for Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion and an Associate Professor in the Department of Education Studies at UC San Diego. She most recently served as co-editor of their joint doctoral program in educational leadership. She has over 10 years of administrative leadership both at UC San Diego and the University of Washington College of Education where she directed their higher education program. Her research, research focuses on issues of equity and access for underrepresented students in the education pipeline and the role of public policy in ensuring student equity across a P20 continuum. Okay, doctora, all yours. Thank you. Buenos dias. So I have the distinct honor of introducing our panel for Latina Pathways in a P20 Systems and Beyond, answering the call. And then I'll do some context setting in terms of presenting some overview data that will situate the talks nicely. But I want to um, introduce our esteemed panel. Um, you know, Nancy, Dr. Acevedo Gil is a first-generation um, college student herself. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Educational Leadership and Technology here at CSU San Bernardino. So you have one of your own on this panel who's a, a, a superstar already in the field on um, CRT as well as first-generation students. We have Dr. Jeanette Castellanos, who will be discussing the role of mentorship on the panel. 
She is a professor of teaching at UC Irvine in the School of Social Sciences. Um, she's had a numerous, a long career in numerous positions within UC Irvine, directing uh, the Academic Career Center, and she also has a long history of working at the university. Um, and she's also published a few books as well. Um, She's a scientist practitioner, and her research focuses on the college experience of racial and ethnic minority students. And then, finalmente, Dr. Julie Lopez Figueroa is a professor of ethnic studies at Sacramento State University. She focuses on retention um, and qualitative research. She was one of the first scholars in the country to focus on the plight of Latino males in higher education. And today, she is going to be discussing the pathway to full. Um, and so with that, I'd like to give you some context setting. In my own research, I research Latino students and underrepresented students in terms of their navigational processes through, to and through higher education. I just wanted to give some demographic context. By 2040, Latinos will represent more than 30% of seven states, 20% of 16 states, and more than 10% of 30 states. See that? There's a little bit of a lag. Okay. By 2026, Latinx students will represent 29% of all K-12 students in the United States, so not just California, in the United States. Okay. The other point I want to make in terms of context setting is that in California, all public systems of higher education in California are Hispanic serving systems, meaning there are 25% or greater Latinx students. 55% of the K-12 system are Chicanx Latinx students in California. California is home to 159 HSIs and 56 emerging HSIs. 21 out of 23 of the CSUs are HSIs, and 98 out of 114 community colleges are HSIs. All public systems of education, not just higher education, are HSIs. Our very own UCs, five, soon to be six, UC campuses are Hispanic serving systems. And so I want to give you a representation of this on maps. So this is what the community college system looks like, 98 out of 114. The CSU, 21 out of 23. And then the UCs. So you see, and soon to follow will be my own campus, UC San Diego. We are thoughtfully looking at our own infrastructure on how to be ready for Latino students and how to actually be a, a Latinx-serving institution as opposed to just falling into being an HSI, um, as well as UCLA. Um, and so many of the campuses are grappling with becoming an HSI. So in terms of some data points, I wanted to give you a few data points to set up the context. 38% of Latino children in California live in poverty. 43% of Latino children aged three to five are not enrolled in pre-K in 2014. This is critical because we know pre-K means that they're not ready for kindergarten, and so we need to make sure we're promoting that preschool enrollment, um, but also nurturing our children even at home through reading, through bilingual, bicultural texts. 56.4% of the kindergartners today in 2014 were Latino, but the kindergartners that retained, 56.4% of kindergartners retained were also Latino students. So it speaks to the significance of college readiness. 77% is the cohort graduation rate for Latino students in 2014. 65% of English learners graduated in four years, and 29% of Latino graduates completed college prep A through G classes. 
Less than 40% of Latinos transfer from community college sector. In fact, the average time to degree for Latino students in California, but also in the nation, this is from my work with the College Board, is nine years. What happens in nine years? A lot of life happens in nine years. This is something we have to work on. 39% transfer from community colleges in six years. 45% graduate from CSUs in six years. 46% is the graduate, graduation rate from UCs. So why do these numbers matter? These numbers matter and this whole panel is termed answering the call because we have to change that data. We can no longer expect the system to respond to our community in changing those numbers. It has to be a critical mass of Latinx leaders, students, academicians, practitioners to change that data. And so today, answering the call is about Latinas answering the call, but also the, our plight in answering the call for our entire community. I'm going to transition now to Dr. Acevedo Gil, who's going to talk about Latina first-generation students. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Thank you for being here today. I'm going to be presenting today a little bit on fostering pathways into academia for emerging Chicano Latina scholars. So we'll follow students from undergraduate into the first year in their in the, as faculty members. Um, when we think about that pipeline that Dr. Contreras shared initially, we Um, we, think, we take 100 students, 100 Latina students who begin kindergarten in the U.S. Um, and with the research from Dr. Perez Huber and her colleagues, we see that about 63 will graduate with a high school diploma. Of those, about 13 will earn that bachelor's degree, about four will get a, a graduate degree, and less than one will go and continue to get the, the doctorate. Of those who do have a doctorate, when we think about who are the assistant professors uh, nationwide, about 3% of all assistant professors are Latinas. Right. Now, when we think about what's going on in, in terms of why is this happening, we know that um, Latino Latino graduate students and undergrads, based on other research, show that they're likely to encounter racism, negative socialization experiences in graduate school, and have very limited access to faculty mentoring. The faculty mentoring that they receive is often through a Eurocentric lens. It's very academically focused and short term in terms of let's graduate you and, and get you out of this program. Uh, we know that Chicanas and Latinas have resorted to accommodation, coalition building with other women of color, um, and resorted to resistant capital. Um, but throughout this process, Latinas are often socialized away from pursuing uh, faculty positions in tier one research institutions. And once in the professoriate, we are often presumed incompetent based on the numerous research that's out there, right? So part of what I want to talk about today is how do we support emerging Latina scholars? And this data that I'm going to be sharing with you, some of it has been published more recently with uh, Yanira Madrigal Garcia, an article mentoring among Latina Latino scholars and acting spiritual activism to navigate academia. This is coming from interview data from across the nation with PhD students and candidates, postdoctoral scholars, and faculty who are Latina. Um, when we think about the undergrad experience, how do we engage Latinas into the faculty pathway? We hear from Marta, a UC doctoral candidate, who really is urging us to demystify and fund community-based research. She says, my third year of college, I decided to do an after-school program at my former school. Um, I'd always go back to visit some teachers. I proposed it, and they were like, you can use my classroom. I had applied for a grant through the Chicano Studies Institute, and they gave me $2,000. 
I didn't know anything about grad school research, but I made it sound like I did. They were like, yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> That's when I started to realize, it was like, oh, I could do this as research. I would do this for free. I would do this either way. That's when I really started to get more info like, okay, how do I prepare for grad school? What does that mean? How do I engage with my community in a different way? For me now being in academia and doing the scholar activist research that I do, the struggle is now you're an activist or a scholar. For me, it's just like you have to be actively involved in the community that you are working with, not working on. So we know that Latino students, Latino, Latino, Latinx students pursue academia, pursue graduate school and undergrad because they want to make a change in their community. So how do we use that asset to work with them? At the same time, when we have programs that are supporting our students, how do we ensure that these programs are not reinforcing and reproducing these Eurocentric uh, expectations of academia? So Martha continues to share, I was in the McNair Scholar Program with my friend. One is from Compton and my homegirl who just got her PhD in this department. They wanted us to dress very professional. We're all from different hoods. We felt very uncomfortable dressing a certain way and we would question it. Why are you trying to make me put my hair back? That doesn't make me any smarter. I was like, okay, I'll dress nice, but I'm still gonna wear my chucks. And we all decided that we were gonna wear our chucks when they visited UC San Diego as a way to keep it real. They told us that if we do it again, we were out of the program. They sat us down and said it was a heated thing. I remember feeling like, wow, I'm never gonna fit in no matter where I go because I don't want to fit into their mold. That mold doesn't represent me, where I come from or what I'm about. That tension has always been really productive for me. Like, let's sit with that. Why is there that tension? Why do I have this tension with academia? So acknowledging that these tensions exist. We're not, academia was, that mold of academia wasn't meant for us as Latinas, right? Um, and when we hear from Victoria, who at the time of the interview was her first year as an assistant professor in the CSU system, she really focuses on this need to increase Latina Latino enrollments in graduate school and the connections that they're making within and across departments. She explains, I was not super trusting of a lot of folks based on the conversations that we had had about privilege. I was the only student of color in the program. I was like a spokesperson. I took ethnic studies classes and made friends. Lo and behold, I made friends. She was my main support, her friend that she made. She says, it was so nice to have someone who understood my position. Neither one of us was from that state. The institution was 90% white. It can be very isolating. I had never been so overworked and exhausted. For me, that was very tough. I gave up my fellowship and moved back to California against the advice of my committee. They were not happy for me. But she finished, right? She clearly finished and continued to persist and is now a, a faculty member at the CSU system. Now. At the same time, we know that students in graduate school, Latinas, will need that guidance and validation. Um, Diana, who was a UC doctoral candidate at the time of interview, explains, I was able to connect with my mentor on another level, always telling me, Diana, you are so amazing, to which I feel awkward. I don't know how to respond, but to say thank you. I need those things. These things, those things are what are critical. Seeing her done as faculty, she is my inspiration, my model. She is providing this sense of validation. You are good, because there's always this questioning of, what am I supposed to be doing? Am I okay? Am I on the wrong track, right? Uh, when we hear from Karen, who was a CSU first-year assistant professor at the time of interview, she talks about this need to develop and foster communities that will validate the intersectional identities of Latinas. She says, I think for me it was probably the first time that I was in a room with so many Latina Latino professors. That was really powerful for me to be able to see myself in those other women, and particularly those who were moms, who were partners, especially when you go to these conferences and you're hardly the person people want to see, but suddenly in these conferences, people are giving you hugs. It really validated me as a community member. It validated me as I am enough, my interests are enough, I am Latina enough, smart enough. 
Um, but as Victoria, who was that first year assistant professor um, in their CSU system, explains, we really need to work on restructuring how we credit mentoring in the tenure process. She explains, it was an intense transition. I didn't realize how many different hats professors need to wear. I knew that it was you do research, teaching, service. On paper, that sounded great, except I'm the only Latina. I'm the only woman of color in my department. I found that mentoring students and meeting with my students is the most rewarding and enjoyable part of my job and it takes the most amount of time. I'm mentoring students outside of research projects. I'm spending time with them trying to figure out majors. One of the things that my mentors, who are all women of color, had said is, you have to watch out for mentoring because it will take time away from research and teaching, and that is what you have to do to keep your job, right? So that's um, something that she points us to, to start thinking about. Ultimately, what these participants really clarify and the research out there already tells us is that we need to demystify and fund um, undergraduate research and particularly community-based undergraduate research to really engage undergrad Latinas to come back to their communities and see there is a purpose for academia within our communities. We need to ensure that guidance programs, mentors, and sponsors are providing validation throughout the process from undergrad all the way through the professoriate. We need to foster scholarly communities that will acknowledge the intersectional identities of Latinas from an intersectional asset-based perspective when providing this mentoring and guidance, as opposed to reproducing the zero-centric lens of academia. We need to increase enrollments of Latinas in graduate programs and credit mentoring in the tenure process, which I think some uh, institutions are, are moving towards that. But in all reality, what we can do, for those of you who are in the room in these positions, we need to hire more Latinas uh, in tenure track faculty positions. We can't do this work without more. So, thank you. And now, Dr. Castellanos. Buenos dias y bienvenidos. It is exciting to be here in such an important event. And so as you heard a little bit from Nancy, you're hearing that the experiences of Latinas in higher education as we're moving through the trajectory to the professoriate is not an easy one. And so today I was asked to speak about mentorship because I see mentorship as one of the primary keys to assisting Latinas in higher education. In my own trajectory, I am a product of mentorship. I am a product of Dr. Joseph White, who was the father of black psychology, and the person who was the founder of EOP. And so if you understand the roots of EOP, we understand that he was about access. And so when we think about mentorship, Joe talked about the freedom train. And the freedom train, he said, education is the freedom train. And what we're doing is we're liberating minds. We're helping people release the shackles that have been placed on them so that they can reach their maximum potential. Okay? And so mentorship is a relationship. And that relationship has been seen as something where there's an older person or a younger person together. But I will say that even in my own trajectory of helping students be mentored, I've also included peer mentorship, and that's also very effective. So sometimes it's even of the same age that people are creating mentorship for each other. I've put here a model that Dr. Joseph White and I have created with one of our own mentees, which is Veronica Franco. 
This is in progress, and it should be published in the next year. He just passed away in November, but we've been working on this book for the past four years. So this model basically tells you that mentorship is about providing guidance, about facilitating, advising, and coaching. As Nancy very well articulated, we have this model of mentorship to be remote, aloof, and academic in academia. But the models that work best for Latinas are those that are people-centered, those that are community-driven, those that are, pro are providing a purpose and a sense in the context of education. So when we look at the stages, it's you have to develop a relationship with this person. You have to help them goal set. And we talk about, Joe and I talk about protecting that goal, right, that dream. As, as much as we may all have goals, if you don't protect that dream with that mentee, somebody can come around and say, you don't belong here, as you heard in that data. So you have to socialize the person. You have to help them learn the inside game, because we all know that there is an inside game. Okay, and then finally he says that there's an end phase and we talked about how this is a new beginning. So when the professor becomes, when the student becomes a professor, that relationship continues. So I wanna start to encourage all of you, people talk about long-term relationships and long-term mentorship, but why not lifetime mentorship, okay? I met Joe White at the age of 19 and we were writing together and today I'm past 40. Okay, so this gives you an idea. Our relationship and the relationships that we foster and this friendship trained hundreds of people, right? I have placed over 150 students at the graduate level. He has 100, you know, and, our, and then it multiplies, right? So thousands of people. Um, is based on trust, affirmation, likability. The communication has to be back and forth. It's a two-way street. This is not about lecturing, and you have to be clear. Finally, I want to introduce you to the five educational pillars. This is really important for those of you who are wanting to mentor undergraduates, right, so that we can move them through the pipeline. I'll tell you, one of the most devastating pieces for me being at the UC system now for 20 years is as we become more brown, I'm hearing more discussion about how it's not important to help our students learn research how it's not important for students to necessarily go to grad school. Well, that conversation wasn't existing 20 years ago. What is, what is the change there? I can tell you what the change is. It's the faces. So our model is one that has worked, and I have one of my own here in the audience, Vanessa Martinez. Um, she has a master's and works here, right? And, okay. and so we want to talk about how, one, she, she went through these five stages with me, and every student that meets with me, we say, these are the five stages you want to engage in. It is an equation. So we talk about academics, research, practical experience, leadership, and community service. So as students come in, I don't want you to tell them just do well in school, just do well in the classroom. No, if you have a student, mentor them. Say, what are you doing so that you can have some research experience? What type of research are you doing? Or do you have any field experience? Uh, what type of leadership? Are you in Mecha? Are you in an organization? What are you doing? And then finally, community service. One of the things that we talk about all the time is seamless education. So if you don't have community service in the context of bringing education, into their community and making a social change, having a social responsibility, that education is not gonna have the same value. 
And I understand people talk about how we all need degrees and that a BA is going to help everybody be, you know, get a million dollars. But the reality is that I need people to go on to get a graduate degree as well. And it's by having that seamless piece. So I want to focus the fact that when you talk with Latinas and you're doing mentorship with them, it has to be a psychological process. Those who know me understand that my background is psychology and education. So you have to address their fears, their concerns, their goals, even their well-being. The assessment has to be holistic. We often focus just on how are you performing? Are you, do, are you getting good grades? Well, beyond that, how is your family? Take a seat. How's your mother? Right? And then helping them envision that goal and, and basically dreaming the goal and the dream. As you're thinking about creating a pipeline, we have to create a venue for research at all institutions, at the community college, even in the high school, and of course, unsaid, at the CSU and at the UC system. That is a very key element for grad school. And so when you start to talk about research, I want to encourage you to think about emic processes. Okay, emic processes that are relevant and connecting for those people, those Latinas. So when a student comes into my office, they'll say, Dr. C, but research is not really what we do. Research is what other people are doing, Dr. C. I don't know if this is relevant for me. And then we start to say, well, wait a minute. What does research really look like? What do you think research looks like? And they say, well, this is all I'm studying. And then, of course, it's, you know, uh, so we have Skinner and we have, you know, CBT, people that do not look like them, of course. But then I say, okay, well, let's look at Dr. Contreras. Let's look at, you know, and I start to give examples. People who are from their same communities, people who are doing research that's relevant. And so my lab doesn't do generic research. It does research that's related, relevant, right? If they're Latinas, then we're going to study comadres and the network of comadres and how that network impacts college persistence. They bring for me what their values are. I have another one who says, I want to study familismo. Perfecto. Let's study familismo, right? This is their own reality. Helping students create a scholarship that's relevant and practical but important. And so finally, I want to emphasize the fact that when you're doing this, and I have a couple pictures there, I'm very proud of some of these pictures. That picture here at the bottom, you'll see that there's seven Latinas. Six of those Latinas have a master's or a PhD. Okay, thank you. And the one that was missing just gave me the gift to say, Dr. C, I'm applying to a master's now. Write my letter. All right, so my point there is that you have to help them do your op, uh, SERP, funding, research funding, right? Undergraduate research funding, right? A trio, things like that. You have to make sure that these students also realize the importance of social responsibility. So I talk about generational mentorship. I say to them, they're in this lab, I say, you're a junior, this person's a sophomore, you're going to teach them. Of course, I'm teaching them, but they need to teach with me. Right? And so we cultivate these values and we provide them this concept of familia. So I want, to I want you to understand that we study academic family, the sense of community. And in this lab, we talk about academic politics and climate and educational barriers, and we promote role models. Finally, I have a call for, for mentors and mentees. This one slide is about mentors. And so I want you to start 
where the person is. Help Latinas visualize uh, what they want to become. Help them get hands-on experience in the field and own, underscore social consciousness and social responsibility. Once you have that connection with community, that education is very different. The value, the relevance, right? The connectivity. Finally, there's all these steps that people think, well, why do I need to tell them all that? They should know that, right? The idea of conventions or conferences and letters and a grad school list sounds pretty practical. So do, so do the five educational pillars, right? But these are the basics that do need to be covered. Finally, uh, facilitate networks, right? I have to say that in my time of being able to say hundreds of people being placed, Dr. White and I have educational partnerships, places that I can call people and say, I have a student, they're applying, consider them. That doesn't mean that they're gonna get in, but that means that they're going to be considered. And most importantly, when they do get in, because most of the time they do, I can confine that that person is going to be trustworthy and help my student finish. Okay, there's, ahí está la clave, there's the key, right? Finally, mentees. All relationships have silent messages. So realize what people are saying. I need you to have an internal message about I can make it work for other people. I am part of a larger movement, right? So it's the lesson of you are part of a larger movement. You are not alone. I need you to own your strengths, know our history, and honor your journey. Every roadblock, you know, and is an accomplishment. And finally, I need you to create family, academic family. Go seek faculty, go seek professionals, and then and be transparent. I always used to, I always ask my students, and Dr. Whitewood too, what's your passion and what will be your legacy? Seek multiple mentors and thank you. Now we have Dr. Julie Lopez Figueroa from CSU Sacramento. I'm a little shorter than everybody else, but tall in spirit. <laughs> Good morning, buenos dias. It's really wonderful to be here today and I really think that there's something impactful about visually seeing things. Y'all get that? to visually see something with your eyes, you bear witness to something. And so um, I've enjoyed sort of watching folks watch us <laughs> to bear witness. And you'll understand what I mean by that in a little bit. So I wanna address the first part of the title, becoming a full professor. And let me jump right in. I wanna sort of frame what it be meant to become a full professor by sharing some demographics. So in the CSU system, Right, we have three levels of the professoriate. We have assistant, right, associate, and full. So at the assistant level, uh, actually let me back up for a little minute. The chancellor's office released a faculty employment report. And it traces uh, and outlines uh, gender breakdown, right? So you see here at the assistant level, for the entire system, there's 1,717 assistant professors. Let me say that of those 176, right, are Latina, and on my campus in fall, 
17, there were four. At the associate, you have 1,173 within the system, 106. My campus, five. I'm what you call a unicorn. I became a full professor uh, about uh, fall 2016. And so this number is very personal for me, right? This is fall 17 data. So 2,169, in the system, and 13 at my campus. However you're making sense, whatever way you're making sense of these numbers right now, let me say, Getting a dental degree does take courage, but it's not impossible. I need you to believe that. I need you to really hear that. So let me sort of frame a little bit of what, what got me through where I'm going. What got me to be a full professor? One is I had to acknowledge some realities. I was a first-generation college student, EOP student, I was also uh, bilingual, which in my day, if you were bilingual, you were tracked into special education. So I needed somebody to get me out of special education, and they did. Uh, my parents are from the state of Michoacan. Oh, yeah, don't leave me hanging. <laughs> right. Although they didn't have a chance to attend formal education, they had what we call the degree in common sense. Yeah. I was the only Chicana Latina faculty in my entire college. You can't hide. Paresco mosca en leche. I was very visible and yet invisible, if that makes sense. And finally, I realized by reaching out to people who were also professors in retirement, nearing retirement, uh, who were much senior than I was when I first started my academic uh, position here at Sacramento State, um, that I realized that even though tenure, which is the process that we acquire promotions, does not work historically the same for people of color. So when the standard says three publications, everybody says do what? Six. So we have a new standard of excellence. So how do you sort of navigate some of this, right? So I would say the second part of the title is, right, walking together. One of the things I will say about what it means to be a Chicana Latina professor, full professor, is that my ability to thrive is not just about working through and earning my degrees. I went to Berkeley for my PhD, went to UC Santa Cruz for my master's, and I double majored in sociology and Chicano studies at UC Davis. But I will tell you this, no number of degrees is gonna earn you the respect of people if you don't have the common decency to say hello, carry conversation, and say goodbye. I say that because my ability to thrive didn't come from what school taught me. It's what my culture educated me to become. 
And I know one thing, right? One thing I know about Latino culture is we love being together. We love being resourceful. That's why when we have a quinceanera, you have 14 padrinos. <laughs> so we're resourceful. And we love being together. That's why it takes us an hour to say goodbye. <laughs> right? So I could release myself from the shackles of individualism, which is what school insists. Failure is, your, is an isolated incident? No, it's not. So I reached out to everybody. And I make sure to prioritize meaningful opportunities. Lead is one of them, right? Where you can bear witness to seeing things. Because when you see numbers like this, it's easy to feel invisible. So thank you so much for allowing us to be on this platform so I can bear witness to you and you can see me. The other part is creating networks. We all know each other. Some of us actually met in graduate school. So part of it is there's a connection there um, and so I reach back, I mentor undergrads, graduate students, junior faculty, but I also make sure I have a mentor. Again, I'm a first-generation college professor. Lastly, I think the other part is making sure that you have a good balance in your life, right? Family, friends, people who love you unconditionally, because there's one thing higher ed doesn't do, it doesn't love you. It can be unkind, do you all know what I'm saying? So you got to balance that out by being strategic about who's with you, who's around you. So here's what I know for sure. Self-advocacy is critical. And what I mean by that is you don't have to do it alone. And if that voice somehow tells you doing it alone is about bravery, okay, I can get down with that. But the other part to that is, what if you don't have that many resources? And there are other people who actually could help you. The other part is, you have a purpose. There's a reason you and I are here in this space in this moment. Third, it's about honoring the opportunity. You already heard the numbers and how many people actually make it through this pipeline. Not many. So it means something that you're here. And finally, it's critical to draw strength from our histories. I say that because it's important to acknowledge that to be Chicana Latina means you have to recognize some historical truths. One, we come from a conquered people. But the dream was too big to stay conquered. And two, hope is our greatest asset to triumph. I, anybody who knows me knows that I always talk about the Mendez case. In fact, sometimes I think I should tattoo it on me, right? <laughs> but I, I come back to that case because it's a historical part that keeps me anchored in saying, what was? And where's my responsibility to honor that legacy? So to me, one of the things I really want to invite you to do is think about what is your purpose, what is your history, and how do you utilize that to benefit others? So as uh, somebody who also believes in mentoring, please take down my email, send me an email. Whatever I can do to be of support, I want to be able to do that. Thank you so much. Thank you. Are you all fired up?
for the rest of the day. I just wanted to reiterate that we're all first-generation Chicana faculty up here. And so, I personally grew up in Norwalk. I'm the daughter of a Teamster. We all have very similar experiences in terms of coming from working-class backgrounds. If we can do it, you can do it. I wanted to highlight one point of data, and that is that Chicanx Latinx faculty in my own system, the UC system, are 4.4%. We are 54% of the K-12 population. We are 4.4% of the UC system. We need you. If we are not researching our Latino students and our issues, someone else will write our story for us. It is time for us to write our own story. Please join us in answering the call the rest of the day. Thank you. So one, one or two questions if they're quick from the audience. Buendista, yes. Go Puente. <laughs> que viva la mujer. Que viva. Um, so, my name is uh, Brandon Molina. I'm from Los Angeles Harbor College, uh, down in Wilmington. Um, so, I'm also a Puentista. I'm part of the Puente program, Puente Project. Shout out to my Puentistas out here. Um, so yesterday, uh, the, Puente, uh, the Puente Social Media Ambassadors and I were discussing a um, few of the workshop topics, and we were all, and the main focus is just discussing um, how cultural norms in the Latinx community has a big effect, um, you know, on Latina women and how it you know it creates barriers for uh, students. So my question for the panelists is, um, what can we do as Latino men to be good allies and advocates for mujeres that are going through their educational journey. So I think you're on the uh, good path here, right? Part of it is showing up and then showing up with a heart to listen and um, also making space for truths, not truth, but truths. And so um, being instrumental in, in showing up for other people and making space for the realities as well. And also knowing that we co-construct reality, right? So if reality, right? So if reality is co-constructed, it can be changed. So I think you're, that's, that's, it's that simple. There's no rocket science to it, right? Just stay committed to that vision um, that you wanna set forth. I think one thing to to add to Dr. Figueroa's comment is reframing this notion of machismo to towards patriarchy, right? And how it's very closely tied to colonialism, coloniality, and patriarchy, where it's it's not just quote unquote a Latino cultural concept. This is the world we live in, right? To understand that even if you think you're not reinforcing um, maybe machista quote unquote um, traditions, you are within a patriarchal world, especially in the U.S. Um, so just acknowledging that, the same idea, where there's different stories and there's different notions of patriarchy that we may be, we may be blinded to at first, right? And allowing ourselves to use these different lenses to see these different realities. And I'll, I just wanted to add, so 
the majority of, of uh, Latino students that are going on to higher education are Latinas. And so the community to uplift the Latino community will be Latinas. And so what we can't forget is that we need to pull and support our Latino males as well. And so when we ask you to answer the call as men to also show up, you know, to complement what Julie said, to show up and be partners with the mujeres in this collective mission to change the future for our community. I agree. I think that it's so important that there is some communication, collaboration, and I really think of it from a psychological wellness standpoint. We are in a very difficult space, right? Higher education, as Julie said, oftentimes pushes us out. So we need to come together in spaces, safe spaces to be able to communicate, to share our challenges, but also to have a plan. And the plan has to be a collective one. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Que viva la mujer! Okay, I want to acknowledge April Rodriguez, who was here earlier. I don't know if she's, is April Rodriguez here? She is our Teacher of the Year. She was here earlier. Anyway, she's very involved. Um, she's from Arlington High School. I think they're, on, they're taking their, their campus tour, so that's why they're not here. Okay, so uh, let's take a little five minutes just to stretch, okay? So we'll switch it. Thank you.